This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka coming to you live on digital tape from my house in Brooklyn because it's a pandemic. Um, I hope everyone is well and safe or as well and safe as they can be. Speaking today with Matthew Ball who normally lives in New York, but has moved to Toronto briefly. Welcome, Matthew. Nice to be here. Matthew is a, how do I describe him? A media analyst, media investor, digital media veteran, used to work at Amazon. He has been on this show before. Very popular episode. We're happy to have him back. Want to talk to him about the future of digital media, as we always do, but specifically what the pandemic is going to do to gaming and the movies and TV. So we'll do all of that. Matthew wrote a, a really good series of essays about that. You can check them out on his website. But I, I wanted to kick things off just because it's in the news. Um, yesterday, we had Netflix earnings. I thought they were very exciting. I was texting you last night. You said, no, that was a boring quarter. Um, just to recap, in case you weren't following, Netflix thought they might do 7 million subscribers in the first quarter of, of 2020. And because of the pandemic, they did 16 million. Um, that is basically uh, an extra 8 or 9 million people signed up in the month of March, um, because they were locked down. That sounds pretty interesting to me, Matt. What 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 is not interesting about that to you? So the interesting thing about every Netflix quarter is the way in which it seems to confirm what investors consider a prior or a prior belief. If it's good, that's proof that the bulls are right, that Netflix has a lot of headroom in front of them. If they're mixed, it's proof that they're about at the end of the rope. And if they're bad, of course, the bulls excuse that away as an aberration, and the bearers consider it to be confirmation. Because we are in such a strange time, there is no baseline, because every subscription service is well up, because every media service is well up, we all knew that the quarter was going to be big. And as a result, there's very little debate as to what this means going forward. And even if you take a look at what Reed has said, he has admitted that the future is unclear, that they expect that this is going to make Q3 and Q4 lighter than anticipated. They expect that consumers are going to be watching more. But there's really no opportunity for debate. Yeah, I guess to me, I mean, we all knew that people were going to watch more Netflix. To me, an interesting question was, will more people pay money for Netflix? And yes, you can look back and go, well, yeah, clearly they would have had a bunch more signups. But we didn't know that. And now we got to see it. And like you said, we don't know. There's an argument uh, that Netflix is putting out themselves saying, look, there's probably a bunch of people who were going to sign up later in the year, and now they've signed up already, so we're not going to be able to add them later in the year. I still thought that that, that it was an astonishing number. It's a, it's a record number for them. And I was also astonished uh, just to hear, I've always appreciated this about Reed Hastings, to hear him say, look, we, we don't know. 
what's going to happen. Um, he had a quote, uh, I'm going to paraphrase it now, but we don't use the words guess and guesswork lightly around here, but we're using them because we're just feeling the wind, I think was his phrase. And I think to hear a CEO of a giant um, company, a disruptive company say, I really can't tell you what's going to happen is something that we should all just sort of note. Um, we all know instinctively that this is a crazy time and no one can see the future. Um, but to hear someone who should be leading a company saying, I, I don't know either, is, is striking. I mean, the particularly terrifying piece of this, when you take a look and try to understand how much headroom is left, Netflix years ago said that they thought that the United States would saturate at 60 to 90 million. They're at about 63 million. And so that question has started to become very real. Is Reed said last night that it stands to reason that if you did not add Netflix during this period of time, when you are stuck at home with very few alternatives, that you're unlikely to subscribe once it subsides, when you need less entertainment time and yeah. you have more alternatives. And so the bare thesis here does have some power from the standpoint of, well, if the United States only added you know, one to two million in the quarter, what does this look like in two years when at minimum there are more alternatives and at maximum, all of the players, Apple TV included, Disney Plus included, Peacock, have also scaled up their content operations. That's all unclear. But again, it comes back to this idea of whether you were a bull or a bear, there isn't really clarity on that mission today. Yeah. Look, you 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 invest for a living. I just write about people who invest for a living, so I don't really care whether the stock goes up or down. Uh, I am interested in sort of how it affects the entire media ecosystem, how it affects what we get delivered to us. And maybe that's a good bridging point. You, you wrote these series of essays about what's going to happen to media sort of after the pandemic or how the pandemic will affect it. And if I'm summing it up correctly, your main thesis is, look, the pandemic acts as sort of an accelerant. It takes trends that were already happening and, and speeds them up. Um, so maybe we can start off by talking about Netflix and the other subscription services. We have spent a lot of time talking about them over the last year and a half. Um, as everyone knows, Disney Plus launched late last year, seems to be doing very, very well, 50 million subscribers. Uh, Peacock sort of launched earlier this month. Uh, you didn't really pay attention to that because if you weren't a Comcast subscriber, you couldn't see it. Um, and HBO Max is now going to come out in uh, May 27th. So by the next time we have you on this show, Matt, we'll have a much clearer idea of sort of what the landscape looks like. But what does the pandemic do to sort of the landscape of SVOD streaming services that we've been thinking about for the last couple of years? Does it fundamentally change anything? It hasn't fundamentally changed anything. I think what we are seeing overall is an exacerbation of the haves and have-nots. And there are a few ways to look at that. It's very clear on the high-level basis that if you have been in market for the past few months, you have collected unprecedented and accelerated growth. Netflix is an example of that. Disney has been forthright in saying they have collected more subscribers than they anticipated. The data for every service that is in market shows significant growth and lower cost of acquisition. That means more customers and more economical customers. People are at home. People want to get this stuff. Um, it's presumably cheaper to advertise them to them because the ad market has fallen off a cliff, right? Right. right. Translating so you, that? Yes. So you have two benefits. It's easier to get customers and you need to pay less to get them. And that means that the cost of acquiring a customer gets lifted by both. So to that token, if you were one of those streaming services that has been spending several years trying to enter the market, trying to be ready, suddenly that gap, which used to be one or two or three extra quarters, gets exacerbated. The, the gap between that, you and the people who are already doing it. Correct. The yeah. fact that HBO Max has not launched means that they have probably missed out on 
two to three million subscribers and lower cost subscribers than they would have already had. Peacock is just going to slightly miss this window. Viacom is still months and months away from unveiling its House of Brands service. And so on that primary level, we see this exacerbation. But that's going to continue. Peacock has announced that while they are still going to move ahead with their launch, they are not going to have nearly any of the exclusive originals they anticipated having until 2021. Because they can't make them. Correct. They just are not ready. They were going to be ready by the end of the year, but they're going to kick out even farther. If you take a look at Quibi, Quibi has no doubt stockpiled several months, but they are now also in the risk of running out of content by the end of the year. Netflix and others face that same concern, and yet Netflix has the deepest catalog to discover. They've also got the most diversification from an international perspective, too. And so should the United States remain closed to further production, they will at minimum be able to bring in series that are currently undiscovered locally, but have been popular elsewhere. Dark right, being so it's, a classic it's, German show. Right. Or new, it's new to you. Just because you, or they, you know, there's a, a, what do they call it? Money, it's money heist. Uh, right. I think it's Casa de Papel. This is a, a giant hit uh, for Netflix, mostly outside of the United States. And presumably at some point you'll find it. And then also Netflix is buying content that some of their competitors plan to have either on their own service or in theaters. Um, either because they can't put it in theaters or because they're just saying, look, we'll, we'll just sell it to you. We'll take the cash. Um, so it seems like Netflix gets even stronger. Yeah, there's another weird element, which is for most of the traditional SVOD services that are vertically integrated into a larger media conglomerate, they actually have a double hangback, which is to say HBO does not start getting Warner Bros. films until Warner Bros. films have first gone to theater. And so even in the instance in which you say, well, there's no reason why that title can't go to HBO or soon to be HBO Max, the difference between a six-month theatrical closure and a 12-month theatrical closure hits Warner Bros. on the feature side and then hits Warner Bros. or its sister company, HBO Max, as well. So uh, we were going to make money by putting this in theaters, and then eventually it was going to go on HBO Max, and we could make money twice that way. And now... Maybe that'll still happen, but it'll happen a year from now or 18 months from now. And both were screwed on the theater side, and also we have less stuff to put on HBO Max. So we're, we're not only are we not getting the revenue, we're, we're doubly hurt. Right. And there are some companies, too, that just simply cannot afford to sit on a product they have paid for, that's a finished film, for a year and a half in the hopes that that film then does well, especially in an environment where we still don't think the market will have recovered. So we've seen several different titles, basically what you would consider to be a kind of tier 2B or even a tier 2A film that were planned for theatrical release and have now been offloaded to Netflix. So we talked about this with Rich Greenfield. Uh, God, I don't know. It seems like a month ago now. Maybe that was a month ago. The idea that, that what were the, what were the uh, movie studios going to do with the movies that are supposed to come out this year? Would they bring them uh, to SVOD? Would they put them on pay-per-view? Basically, it seems like there's a couple exceptions. Trolls 2, I think it was called Trolls 2, came out on, on pay-per-view. Um, NBC uh, Universal said it was their best performing digital release ever, but it was a totally data. There was no data to support it. We've got no idea what that means. But basically, it seems like most of the studios have decided, we're just going to hope everything is better in a year. We're going to take all the movies we were going to show you this summer. We're going to hope that you watch them next year. At the same time, we're going to show every other movie we're planning on showing next year. Leaving aside the fact that we don't really know when and how movie theaters are going to operate again, and anyone who tells you they do is, is lying, that seems like a fraught strategy. You're going to have just a pile up of movies at some point. 
Yeah, there's kind of a three-point issue there. The first is there is no world in which 2021 has the attendance that we were once expecting. If it was going to do 1.3 billion tickets, it's probably going to do 1.2, 1.15 at best. If just, just because that many theaters won't be open, people won't feel comfortable going to theaters, people won't have money to go to theaters because there's a global recession. Right. I mean, if you take a look at theatrical consumption, still about, I believe, 20 to 25% of tickets are seniors, many of whom will go to one film per month. It's entirely likely that they still attend the theater in 2021, but to believe equivalent consumption is going to happen is just hard to believe. So your first issue is fewer tickets are going to be sold. The second is any high potential blockbuster from 2020 that is being kicked into 2021 is largely going to cannibalize some of the ticket potential of another title. We know through history that having a strong theatrical slate in a year can have a minor impact on total consumption, which is to say, if 2019 has a great slate, it might sell 2 to 3% more tickets than a bad year. What that means is you're looking at a 2021 with more competition, more consumption, and greater scarcity of release dates. And so even those films that could have worked, that did not need to go direct to consumer, did not need to go direct to SVOD or VOD, are starting to be pushed there. And so today or yesterday, Warner Bros. announced that Scooby-Doo is going to skip the theater. That's another example like Trolls. And they are going to continue to accumulate. Artemis Fowl is a major Disney title that was supposed to come out in July that has instead just been shifted altogether to Disney+. Plus. So that's all good if you're a home consumer, I think. And I think it's good if you're running a a subscription service, although, again, all these things are all vertically integrated. So um, do we train the consumer to go to the movies less over the next couple of years? And is, is that a permanent state of affairs or, or does it eventually when we get back to normal, whenever that is, people continue to sort of go see movies at the same pace they were going to the last few years? I think the way you would have to look at it is as follows. We are 20 plus years into a sustained decline in attendance of the film theaters. During this period, more people are going to adopt on-demand streaming platforms. Most of them are going to keep it. At the same time, we are seeing more and more films that are going to be forced out of the theatrical channel altogether. So if you look at that, you're looking at a world in which consumers were already disengaging from the theater. They now have more access to more substitutes, and the supply of films going to the film theater is overall decreasing and going to those aforementioned channels. People are going to keep going to the movie theater. That's pretty intuitive. The problem is that volume is going to continue to decline and at a faster rate than ever before. So the one thing I don't want to own then, I guess, if I was an investor, is a movie theater chain. Um, it's hard to see how any of this gets better for them ever. That's certainly a consensus opinion. I think one of the challenges here is if you take a look at what's happened over that 20-year period, you've seen a 35% decrease in the number of tickets sold per person. You've seen a 25% decrease in the total number of tickets sold. And yet the number of movie screens is up 10%. The price is down 10% on an inflation-adjusted basis. And the total number of films released is up about twofold. That's just a dynamic that no business, whether it's in the midst of digital disruption or not, is going to find fun. And this is pre-COVID. So we're going to take a break so we can hear from an excellent advertiser. And then we're going to have some related questions about advertising when we come right back. 
This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. Still here with Matthew Ball, who's still in Toronto. How is Toronto these days, by the way, Matthew? How does it compare to New York? It's equally quiet. I think overall, Canada has still really struggled with the coronavirus. There's still a hospital shortage. There's still a respirator shortage. And yet we're at about two and a half times less uh, lower in infection rate and death rate than the United States. That's probably a different podcast to talk about infection rates. Um, but, but I would listen to that podcast. Um, so let's, we were talking about uh, the, the movie business. We talked a little bit about subscription video. Let's talk about TV, which is tied into all those things. Clearly, there's a collapse in advertising. Clearly, there's a lot of stuff that the TV networks were planning on uh, putting on TV and can't. Uh, most obviously, live events. Most obviously, sports. Again, at some point over time, things snap back. But what happens to the ESPNs of the world, the Turners of the world, people who previously had declining but still very good businesses showing you, selling you TV and selling ads on TV? You've been tweeting a, bit, a bunch about this, the idea of force majeure. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Yes. Act of God, right? This is the get out of jail, not free, but uh, you, you, can, you can, a clause that says, look, if something terrible and unforeseen happens, we can sort of throw all this up and I can ask for my money back or I can get out of this contract. Um, you were bringing this up yesterday because Disney is not going to pay a couple of its writers that it had promised uh, to pay. But where you're thinking all this leads is at some point, the Comcast of the world are going to go to Disney and say, you know how we're giving you billions of dollars so you can give us sports? Well, we don't have any sports. Give us our money back. Um, a lot of folks think that is unlikely to happen. Can, can you sketch out why you think it actually will happen? So on a very specific basis, we found out this morning from AT&T that their sports networks, TBS and TNT, have already requested and received funds back from the NCAA for March Madness sports rights that they purchased that they have not received. So at a high level, it is very hard to imagine that if TNT is getting refunds for the sports, it couldn't air. We paid you billions of dollars to show you college basketball, and we didn't get to show you about college basketball, Correct. so give us your money back. It's very hard to believe that as a result, the distributors then paying TNT for the rights to rebroadcast that sports content are going to say, yep, that's fine. We're just going to keep sending you the checks per usual. Because consider the implications. That would actually mean that TNT and TBS have suddenly become enormously profitable. They're getting the same revenue to not sell the thing they didn't sell and thus not buying it from their supplier in the first place. That's actually what's happening with health insurance now, right? Right. And in theory, then I could go to my cable company and say, I've been paying you 
a lot less, but still a bunch of money for sports, give me my money back. And they don't seem to want to do that either. Well, you would not have a force majeure clause. I do not mm-hmm. believe uh, that you have hired a lawyer to negotiate with Time Warner Cable, and I doubt that they would be highly receptive to that. But I think the macro point here is less around the specific invocation of force majeure and this macro question of what are the incentives and concerns in 2020. Most contracts for distribution, for carriage, for sports rights are set in many years in advance. These are like seven-year deals very often. Right. And most of the current roster was set in 2016, 2017, 2018. At that time, there was a lot of hope that pay TV was going to rebound. Virtual low-cost services like Sling TV, like AT&T TV Now, or Hulu with Live TV was going to rescue pay TV. And it wasn't yet clear that the already extraordinary declines in pay TV consumption hadn't bottomed. What we've seen three years later is all of that was a false promise. All of the underlying trends have become worse. And neither of those correlated or was based on coronavirus, which has made each uh, worse still. And so on top of that, we have since seen many of the major networks start to cut bait on the traditional ecosystem. So Hulu with FX is a great example. Fox, which was subsequently acquired by Disney, went to the rest of the ecosystem and said, we are going to massively expand our best network, FX under John Landgraf. We're going to close to double the amount of programming we produce. We are going to launch a new deep catalog service so that your subscribers can watch everything FX has ever made through you, not Netflix, not Hulu, not Prime Video. And then earlier this year, or late last year rather, Disney said, actually, we're going to take half of FX and we're going to make it Hulu exclusive. That which we aren't pulling out of FX, we're going to put on Hulu three hours after the original airing with at minimum fewer ads, at best no ads, and it's going to cost nothing more. We're telling our customers that the best way to watch our stuff is not by getting it through our traditional distributors. And in fact, you can't get half of that stuff. Right. That problem has happened everywhere. TBS and TNT, their best titles, their best original series are being yanked off of the Turner channels, going to HBO Max exclusively. Disney is saying most of our new shows are not going to our Disney networks. Our best shows, like The Mandalorian, are not going to our linear networks. They're going to be available on Disney+. Peacock is doing similar. They're Saved by the Bell reboot. That's a Peacock exclusive. Their Battlestar Galactica reboot That's going to be a Peacock exclusive. And so over the past three years, not only has the traditional ecosystem eroded, but those distributors who signed up to purchase content from these networks have since seen that their suppliers have told their own customers, yeah, just go elsewhere, please. So this tension between the content companies, between them trying to create new revenue streams to understand where their consumers are going to, to give them what they want versus keeping their traditional customers who are the, the actual TV distributors happy has, has been going on for a long time. And for a long time, um, the sort of the, that always tipped in the scale of the, the distributors, right? You didn't, you, you might try an innovative new service like Hulu, but you weren't fundamentally going to scare Comcast because Comcast was giving you the majority of your revenue and you had a seven or 10 year deal and you needed all that money and you needed to renew that deal. 
Um, and even over the last couple of years, you saw a lot of people trying to sort of have it both ways. Disney, you know, ESP, uh, Disney would say, look, we're going all in on digital, but actually ESPN still remains a cable property. We're not going to give anyone any reason to not get cabled because they're going to have to get ESPN. But what you're saying is actually that is actually collapsing quite quickly. And it looks like most of the content companies are saying, you know what, we're just we're just going to go faster than we thought and we're not going to try to balance anymore. That's exactly right. And I think there are a few different drivers there, one of which is, as I mentioned earlier, the rate of decline in that old ecosystem, that system that once they thought was actually going to stabilize, has gone from 2% annual declines to 3%. Most recently, it was declining at 8% per annum. And still, that rate was growing at about 50% per year. And so any model that said, this is going to be okay, it's just going to hurt for the foreseeable future, we're now seeing existential threat by 2025. That's the big risk. Then you can take a look at the upside, which is Disney Plus comes out the gate. They say, look, this is going to hurt for a few years. We're going to forsake billions of dollars. We're going to invest billions more to build this platform. But you can plausibly build up a large subscriber base. And so that gives the optimism for all of these parties. And then finally, there is that overarching narrative of the streaming wars, which is if there's a window, if there's a plausible path, we don't want to be last. Customers are not going to be as excited to pick up the fifth branded service as they were the first or second or third. And so to some extent, this was actually just a question of when did one decide to make a break for it? Because after Disney went for it, then Warner Media said they were going for it. Shortly thereafter, NBC Universal said they would go for it. And then the entire ecosystem kind of goes into mutually assured departure. If you're a giant cable company, if you're Charter, if you're Comcast, uh, in the past, you had all kind of levers you could pull. Um, and a big one was like, all right, look, if you want to go sell HBO by yourself, Time Warner, go for it. We're not going to help you. And it turns out you really need our help because that's how you traditionally sell HBO. What are the Comcasts of the world have left in terms of things they can do to slow that or, or leverage? The more interesting element is actually the disposition shift used to be either trying to give discounts to consumers to convince them to stick around or by trying to work really extensively with those suppliers that you just mentioned to come to an agreement that works for all parties. The disposition shift more recently has been most of the major distributors have told customers, look, if you want to drop pay TV service, that's fine. We're not going to give you a discount. We just can't afford it. The margins aren't there. And they have started to say- And you're, to gonna, you're going to continue to- buy broadband for us, from us, and you basically, there's either a monopoly or a duopoly wherever you live. It's incredibly high margins, so go for it. Right. And then to the rest of the ecosystem, again, this is improved by the fact, or enabled by the fact that there are multiple years of deals in place. And so there isn't really a need for the Comcast of the world to go into active renegotiations with various parties. But for the most part, people have accepted what is happening they understand that this is dying. They understand that even years from now, a segment of the U.S. population will still want pay TV, but they are not going to invest in, in, in keeping it around longer through either more content investment. As I mentioned, everyone's pulling their investment out to build their OTT services, and the distributors are no longer fighting to keep pay TV customers by giving up a buck or two or five just to make the prices easier. 
I want to go back to sports. Um, again, if you've listened to this podcast, you pay attention to this stuff, you know that sports rights keep going up and up and up. There are various drivers for it. Um, we have been waiting for years for a digital player to come in and say, I'm going to bid on NFL rights or NBA rights and, and make a really uh, big splash. Up until now, it seemed kind of clear that actually big sports leagues, uh, particularly the NFL, weren't really comfortable going all digital. Um, what they wanted to do was sort of figure out a way to like keep selling their stuff to CBS and then maybe slice off another little bit and maybe make that an Amazon or a, or a Twitter or a Facebook um, program. Does the fact that we're now, you know, a month and a half with no sports, we're going to go with several months more minimum with no sports, does that change the price of sports rights in a couple of years when we we're back to something normal that we've been able to sort of see what life looks like without any sports for a year or so? It's a funny question. On the surface, you have to imagine that the increased perception of risk is going to harm the pricing. There's no way around that. That you could have this happen again. Correct. The second thing that you need to keep in mind is what is the primary reason in which sports were bought? Uh, one of those was it guaranteed a certain level of consumption and it guaranteed a certain volume of content. If you were a network like CBS or a new platform like DirecTV back in the day, you knew not just that there was reliable value, but you knew that you could build something around that ecosystem of rights. So were you an Apple or an Amazon or a Hulu you might have historically looked at something like Sunday Ticket and said, Sunday Ticket is expensive, we'll probably lose money on a direct basis. But it means that for the next five years, it gives us relevance that no other content spend can provide. Now you're not just looking at the risk of losing that content, but basically having that strategy gutted. That's not to say there isn't value there, there obviously is. But people are going to think about how they use sports rights in a different way. It's one thing to lose some of your best shows. Netflix is admitting, guys, like, come 2021, we might not have many of the shows we need. It's a whole thing altogether to lose the backbone of your strategy because of a virus you can't price for, you can't predict, and once underway, you can't evaluate. If I'm selling sports, right, if I'm, if I'm the NFL or the NBA, I go, look, I mean, yeah, this, this was terrible. But our argument has always been, what else are you going to show instead of sports? And more than ever, right? Like you're even weaker than you were before. Without us, you've got no reason to exist. That's not the best argument, but it seems like it will actually be pretty persuasive. If I'm a CBS or an NBC or a Disney, the idea of like going sportsless would be terrifying. I think that makes sense. I think ultimately that probably comes down to more specific questions on a party-by-party -party basis, right? So if we take a look at Sunday Ticket, Sunday Ticket has typically been seen to be the most valuable, most prestigious, highest-priced sports package for sure. And yet if you're AT&T, AT&T pre-Warner Media merger, Sunday Ticket was the core of that business, was the core of that direct-to-consumer content subscription. Now it's very clear that they are positioning HBO Max to be the core of that service. And so you don't need it in that same way. They have, in other words, an answer to your point, which is, what else do you have without us? But if you take a look at some of the other companies like a CBS, it's not clear how much there is there without those sports rights. If you take a look at an NBC Universal, that's probably still pretty important because they still don't have a direct-to-consumer service in market at scale with billions of dollars of revenue. And so I think what we're going to see is 
a transition from a world in which most of the major media companies wanted in one way, shape, or form some portion of most of the leagues operating in the United States. And we will probably see that resettle into more individual players. Any, any sense this makes it more likely that you will see a Google, a Facebook, or someone say, look, one, we have cash, and cash is king. And two, look, uh, not only can we outbid the other guys now, but we have now shown you over the last however many months that a lot of the world is very, very comfortable streaming a lot of stuff. Um, and so the idea that, that putting the Sunday games on a streaming-only service actually isn't going to prevent people from watching it. Um, does that make it more likely you see a digital, a digital player buying a really significant piece of sports? I still don't think that any of the digital players are going to buy a substantial portion of rights that cannot still be broadcast linearly. There just simply is not enough evidence that you can reliably enough deliver enough of that content to enough of America with a high degree of quality or quality assurance that would lead any of these sports franchises to say it's worth the risk. Right, because that's what the NFL is terrified about, right, is hearing from a lot of their, their customers saying, I don't know how to get this, or it's buffering, or whatever it is. Um, this is the worst case scenario. Yeah, I mean, let's put it in perspective, right? Most of these leagues have been struggling to either renew fandom at the younger ages, to maintain the ratings that they used to have, or to make sure that those who are still watching watch the entire game as opposed to the last quarter and just follow the first two on Twitter. There is a belief that distributing on Amazon or YouTube will solve that. That's really just enabling slightly greater access. But at the same point, that doesn't justify taking it out of the traditional ecosystem. And it's also very hard to believe that there are millions of Americans who are not watching Sunday football because they don't have access to it in the traditional ecosystem. And so ultimately, they will only shift to digital when it is clear that that is not going to harm their cumulative viewership and or it will massively enhance the appeal of that content to younger demographics. In my view, that case isn't yet made. I'm going to make a segue out of this. So let's go from sports to gaming which is something you spend a lot of time thinking about, uh, writing about, and I think investing in as well. And you make the case quite persuasively that, that a lot of people are missing the enormity of, of video gaming broadly and sort of where it's going to go in the future. Let's just lay out sort of the, the, the dollar argument, first of all, the sort of size of the game market versus things like movies. I know, this, I know you have this stuff at the top of your head. <laughs> So I would certainly agree with you. I think one of the differences over the past few weeks is if gaming was underappreciated before, it is rapidly coming to the forefront, if just because we don't have alternatives. When it comes to the financials, consumer spend on recorded music is between 20 and $30 billion per year. The box office is about $40 billion per year. And if you want to include things like home video or allocate some of the revenue from SVOD consumption, it's between 60 and $80 billion. Pay TV is the largest at about $300 billion globally in direct spend. Gaming is at 120. So it's four to six times the size of the music industry. It is basically two to three times the size of the film business. And it is growing at about five to six times the rate. Is that growth because there are more people playing video games or because the people who play video games are spending more time and more money doing it? Is, is the audience growing or just the spend growing? It's all three of those things. And I would say that there is a fourth element, which is the degree to which 
experiences we used to consider to be gaming are rapidly expanded and proliferating into other mediums and formats. So for example, later today, Travis Scott is going to be doing a live concert in Fortnite. How do we want to bucket that? And does our perception as to that, where that experience should be, has that changed under coronavirus? Which is to say, it might have been a few months ago that you'd say, sure, that's a concert and concerts are live entertainment, not video games but it's in a video game and thus it's video gaming revenue. But right now you're starting to see, well, most concerts are happening remote. Artists, comedians are charging just for you to watch them in a Zoom. So really, is there actually that much of a distinction between being virtually rendered or not? And so when we take a look at what's happening in gaming, there's growth on the total number of participants, there's growth on the total amount of playtime, there's growth on the amount of spend, but there's also massive expansion in use cases. So here's we'll do, we'll do the disclosure part here. Uh, you and I and some other grown men um, have been spending just about every night in the pandemic uh, playing Fortnite together for an hour or so. And I'm not embarrassed of that, but I just want people to know that. Um, but I do think that the conventional perception of gaming is this is aimed at young men, boys and young men who are spending a lot of time. And so even though it's something they're very interested in and that's a market that a lot of people are interested in reaching, it's not a it's not a universal market. This is a specific subset of people. And, you know, yes, sports are male dominated as well, but you could watch it with your wife or your girlfriend or someone you want to be your girlfriend. Um, you might even like enjoying it if you're a woman yourself, but it doesn't it seems like it's pretty gendered and pretty age specific. Is my perception of it wrong? Overall, it's not. I think what's more interesting is to, to take a look at what the balance of new gamers is. Mm -hmm. So to start, you have to separate between what we consider to be AAA gaming, which is gaming on a PC or a console. In fact, most of the growth in the overall category is in mobile. Mobile is typically far more equivalent on a gender basis. So you're not, you're not, you're not using it. You didn't go out and buy a dedicated machine to play video games. You're doing something on your phone. Right. And so if you took a look and said, let's actually take a look at not the total share of gamers, but the total share of new revenue, that's probably closer to 45, 55 female to male. The other more important thing is the biggest games on earth tend not to be the games that we talk the most about. And so Fortnite gets a tremendous amount of attention. And yet games like Minecraft and Roblox are probably... 70 to 100% larger. Roblox is believed to be roughly 60 to 65% female. It's believed to have roughly one in every two children between the age of nine and 12. That's very distinct from the classic definition of gaming, which would kind of be 25 to 35-year-old men. And certainly when you extrapolate that into who are the dominant consumers 10 years from now, What's their spend profile look like? What is it that they're purchasing? It's very distinct and very different from your classic shooter game. And so you don't think people sort of graduate from, I mean, clearly like, so I've got kids who do sort of all, they do Minecraft, they do Roblox, they do Fortnite, uh, and tinker around with some other stuff, uh, Animal Crossing they're into right now. But um, at some point, they won't want to play those games, and I'm assuming they will move into sort of more traditionally male games. Do you think something changes? So you've got, if, you're, if your argument is, look, half the audience playing Roblox are girls, that those girls will want to play some kind of video game, and then there was some kind of video game will exist for them when they're older. 
basically like it's the 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 gender disparity is going to shrink. That seems likely. Yeah, that's well put. Um, again, like we don't pay enough attention in sort of business media, tech media to video games, but it's not an underground thing, right? The, there's people in every media company for the last couple of decades have said, hey, video games are interesting. We should play in that space. Generally, they license uh, their IP. A couple times they've they've actually dipped their toes into actually buying gaming. Viacom uh, at one point owned the game that uh, made uh, Guitar Hero. But they never went whole hog into it it seems like that was a mistake in retrospect. If you are a big media conglomerate, you're looking at gaming, how do you play in that space now? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think certainly when you take a look at the underlying trends, it's clear that this is a category that is only going to become more important, that already shares many of the core elements of media. And as I mentioned earlier, it is starting to cross over more substantively into traditional media or traditional media experiences as physical as a concert. The other thing that's really interesting here is what have we learned during the coronavirus? It's not just that gaming has become more popular. It's that in a conglomerate that owns every type of media category or meaningfully participates in them, almost all of them have shut down. And so it's one thing to say that's the one media category we're not going to participate in. It's another to say, well, when a pandemic hits, Five of our six businesses go down, they can't operate, nothing happens, and the one we chose not to participate in gets bigger. And so overall, I think that we are going to see many of the media companies who used to say, we tried it, we like it, we don't know how to enter it, we don't know how to participate, they're going to change from a, if the opportunity arises, position, to a, we have to solve this. So to return to your question, how do you? The truth of the matter is there are still multiple major publishers that are less than $10 billion in market value that could be acquired, that could be operated on a pretty independent basis. You just go buy a gaming company that makes a lot of money, that has a lot of users. Right. That's one of the options. The other is when you take a look at what is happening in the marketplace today, there are still many emergent formats and categories that are coming into play. Niantic is a company that still could be acquired, that certainly could have been acquired years ago, that is forging into new interactive formats. Minecraft is a good example of a company that was purchased by Microsoft for $2.5 billion five years ago, six years ago. Microsoft did nothing distinct or prioritized with that asset. They did not say, you are Xbox only. They did not say, you are PC only. They did not say, you're going to be best on our platform. They said, Here's the time, money, latitude to grow. And there are more and more opportunities every day for that. And you don't, you don't try to force a synergy. Uh, you just think, look, here's a popular thing. It's, it's a net plus to us. Go for it. And that's not altogether dissimilar from what big tech does, right? That was Zuckerberg's approach to Instagram. It worked quite well. And then guess what? After seven years, once you've properly integrated your company, there is a point in which you have a more involved take. It's not altogether dissimilar either from how Marvel Studio runs or from how Pixar is run at Disney. More synergies, but in both instances, Disney did not replace the leadership and in many cases actually entrusted the leadership of the company they acquired to take over more of what was happening at Disney Core. It seems like in gaming, uh, what you have is a company making one or maybe two highly successful games. They make other games, but they never have that similar success. They usually have a peak 
uh, they usually continue to be popular after the peak for a long time. You know, the one thing I'm thinking about, if you are a, a Comcast or a Disney, and you're trying to figure out, do I buy something? You know, it's not like Disney buying Marvel where you go, well, we're buying a whole bunch of intellectual property that we can figure out what to do with down the line and we can turn it into stuff. And there's no library, right? You're sort of buying, you're either buying a people who've made a successful game and you're, you're taking advantage of that or you're hoping they'll make more successful games. It seems like, and if you look at sort of M&A and gaming over time and, and some, some not successful IPOs, it's been a real problem for sort of investors to figure out how to value a game company. And I would think that would co- that'd be the same problem for a big media conglomerate. I would probably disagree with that characterization. So if you take a look at what's happened over the past five years, I like to start with 2014 because that's when most of the major media M&A began. The multiples for most of the gaming companies have doubled or more. The earnings have tripled or quadrupled. And so if you were to just say investors have a tough time valuing these companies, their historical frame has been, wow, we did not value them highly enough. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there has been enormous earnings growth. And so if you were to say as a major media company, what do you get with an acquisition of some of these companies or investments in them? The answer is actually pretty straightforward. Massive earnings growth, massive PE appreciation, and exposure to a fast-growing category. I think that last point is the most important. I hate trudging out the old, what would Walt do? Mm-hmm. But it is very hard to imagine that if you are any type of IP-based company, that you can look at the fact that there are hundreds of millions of children playing tens of hours per month of video games, that more and more of their friends are joining every day, more and more of them are spending more time in these games, they're having a delightful time together. And on top of that, these experiences are not just generating intellectual property, that intellectual property is being increasingly applied to other media categories. I have a hard time believing that these major media companies, if they want to stay relevant, can just say, could get it, didn't figure it out, never saw the perfect acquisition, and we were always too scared about a hit-based business. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're Disney, right? Like, they did. They, they made gaming investments. Those didn't really work out. They, um, maybe you can go back and replay it and figure out a way to make them work. I'm thinking about Niantic you just brought up. I think most people know, uh, maybe they don't know what Niantic is, but they've heard of Pokemon Go. Huge game a couple of years ago. I'm sure that it has a lot of players still, but no one talks about it. And I guess my worry would be if I'm the person making that deal, like, well, what if that's their, what if Pokemon Go was the total sum of what Niantic can do and everything else is like a version of it and it's not as successful, but we'll find out, I guess. Um, I want, we got a couple minutes left and I'm going to make you do something you're going to hate, which is I want you to explain the metaverse, um, which is something you talk about a lot in 60 seconds. (laughs) So to your Tia, the metaverse is really hard to describe opinions on it very pretty widely, mostly because it's not just impossible to have a metaverse today, it's mostly unknown what it even is. And were we to even understand the underlying elements, we'd miss the substance of it. The internet is probably a good reference frame there because like the internet, we spent decades knowing what all of the individual needs and some of the quasi-structures would be. And yet once we started to get there in the 90s and the 2000s, we started to find out well, these are the types of companies that work. This is the type of user behavior. This is the type of business model. And that's why even today in 2020, we're kind of shocked with who was ready, who was not, who survived, who emerged. To get to your core question, 
the metaverse will have the following attributes. It will be a persistent space. That is to say, it's a universe or world that doesn't stop or pause. It will be synchronous in the sense that we all experience the same version of it at the same time. It will be living in the sense that it's not fixed. It changes. It evolves. It will have a fully functioning economy of labor, of goods, of creation, of transaction. And most importantly and most challengingly, it will show unprecedented interoperability between private and public experiences, commercial and non-commercial, physical and digital. All of that ultimately turns into this gobbledygook perception or conception of the universe. But ultimately, most of the major media companies believe that it is going to be some form of quasi-successor to the internet. So my version of this is if you've read a William Gibson book, if you've read a Bruce Sterling book, if you've seen any number of science fiction movies, you have some idea what we're talking about. It's basically a blending of the internet slash cyberspace with the real world. Am I doing a, a clumsy summation of it? I, I mean, that's definitely not more clumsy than mine, but that's probably the best we're going to get to on the podcast. Okay. And and there are a lot of people thinking about this, even trying to invest in it. I think you're one of them. I think um, we've talked about this, uh, the idea that like, you know, we think of the company Epic Games as the company that brings you Fortnite. And Epic Games thinks of itself as a company that's creating a metaverse over some long period of time. Um, what's fun about this is, and also frustrating about this conversation, is we're so far from it that you can only sort of talk about it in theoretical terms. When, when do you think this shows up in, quote, real life? Honestly, there's a reason why my one-minute answer turned into three, which uh -huh. is decades away. I'll give one good example. If you ultimately believe that the metaverse is a place in which we can all congregate and hang out as individuals, the truth of the matter is we are nowhere near having the computational capability to enable that on even a basic basis. So if we look back to that famous Marshmallow concert or perhaps the Travis Scott concert that will happen tonight, there were 12 million people participating in that live. But in truth, it was actually about 120,000 instances of 100 people all hanging out together. Those 100 people that's not far from the technological limit to how many people can participate in a space together where they're individually represented and individually under control of themselves. We think that that is a technological problem that we'll solve and it will. But right now, we're nowhere close to having a thousand people or a million people be able to co-experience a shared space. But you think this is a problem that gets solved with software, with chips, with processing power. It's something that sort of you can plot out. Uh, it's not like imagining space travel, where lots of things that don't exist today have to be invented. So the simple answer is, yeah, the consensus is that the, uh, these are problems that are going to solve in time. It's computational power, it's processing, all of these different elements that we have been on a 60-year trajectory towards solving, and we expect to be on a multi-decade path to improving. One of the big challenges here is there's actually pretty de minimis investment overall in solving it, because there is not yet a business case for it. If I said, Peter, I can suddenly allow you to have a game of Fortnite with a thousand people, Firstly, you'd say, well, is that better or is that just more? And then separately, you'd have to ask that question of, well, what's the cost? And so we're seeing 
something very similar to broadband in a sense in the early 90s or 80s or even space infrastructure to take a look at what Bezos is trying to build, which is there's an understanding that once this is in place, a lot will be able to be built on top of it. In fact, many investors think that the metaverse, though intangible and far away, will be as significant as the industrial revolution because it brings the industrial revolution, the creation to the masses online. But that business case isn't there yet. If you somehow could spend $10 billion or $100 billion right now to enable what we call mass concurrency, you wouldn't be able to generate revenue. It would still take quite some time. You'd have there, a cool it, science project. There is a company that's working on this, Improbable. There is SoftBank-backed company. They have, perhaps apt to the name, been struggling to solve this technically. They have been struggling to get customers to buy that service. And similarly, they've been trying to find alternate ways to monetize it. And so when we take a look at all of the companies that may or can solve this, it may be no coincidence that the gaming companies like Epic Games are forging forward. Because what they are doing is not trying to solve for the end state of the metaverse. They're not trying to say, let's have 2040 in 2020. They are saying we have multiple constituent parts of that. We have a place people want to congregate. We have a place where all businesses want to participate. We have a engine that is used for large-scale virtualizations. And we will continue to forge forward with incremental innovation, not in the sense of condescension, but of we can do this and then we can make it better. We can make it go farther. We can make it more exciting. And they will continue to press forward. So we've got a reason to make all this stuff better in real time. We'll get, we'll, there'll be a return on our investment. And along the way, we're building the metaverse. We're just not trying to build the metaverse from square one. Right. And then part of that is also just to understand that the metaverse, like all massive technological revolutions, is not about a single individual or creation. The railroads that brought the entire country together was not about a single person figuring out how to make a train or a train track. It was building a network of connections of different technologies together. One of the big concerns that exists in the marketplace today is that we're scared of how powerful the technology companies are today. As technology and the internet becomes more powerful, does that mean that the winners are in turn more powerful? But in all likelihood for the metaverse to work, you will need every participant to work together at least a little bit. And so as much as we're constrained by what Epic can do or what Amazon can do or what Facebook can do, the ultimate way to think about this is how all of these different technologies and investments are going to converge together. This is pretty heavy stuff. I feel like I want to smoke something at the end of this conversation. The real challenge here is it is incredibly difficult to find investable opportunities here. I'll say that one of the funny things that I get from investor friends all the time is, even amongst those who are as bullish about this being a trillion-dollar value creation opportunity, or $10 trillion if you take a look at big tech today, trying to find out where to invest in that or gain exposure is really tough on the startup and the mega-cap side. I think in general, people think that Snapchat is an interesting participant with their lenses program, that Facebook as a social graph is interesting. Epic Games announced yesterday or leaked that they were basically doubling their valuation. Unity, another major Game Engine is uh, about to IPO this summer or was expecting to. But true to the idea that it's heavy, it's unknown, I can barely articulate it and I at least try to be smart about it, 
there's really no way to think about that cleanly or that space. Matt, we will continue this conversation in podcast form some point down the road. I will see you in person at some point down the road. I will see you tonight, I'm guessing, um, in Fortnite. Thank you for your time. Well, so, Peter, you can't cut me off before I tell the, the Peter Kafka Fortnite story. I don't so, think anyone's going to care, but go for it. So, Peter is not a Fortnite player. Peter is not good at Fortnite. Peter is fantastic at Fortnite. It took me a while before I realized that Peter plays Fortnite on his iPhone and he is better than everyone else he plays with. Once he told me he played on his iPhone, I didn't believe it was true. And then I found it even later that not only does he play on his iPhone, he does not use a controller like everyone else does. He's literally tapping away on his screen and just blitzing everyone else on the map. I'm a digital native and uh, I'm going to announce my second career on this podcast now. I'm, I'm now a professional gamer. Um, All right, Peter. Take sponsorships. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. See you later. Cheers. Thanks again to Matt for coming live to us via Toronto on the internet. Thanks to Gelati and Joel who bring this show to you. Thanks to our sponsors. And thanks to you guys for listening and writing and telling me what you like, telling me what you don't like. This is Recode Media. We'll be back next week.